It looked to be a day pretty much like any other for Cameron Hollowpeter. Cameron was a 20-year-old film student from the Burbs who had made his way into New York City down the steps of a subway station and on his way to class. When all of a sudden, something went wrong deep inside of his brain, unleashing a terrible seizure that took control of his whole body. As his body began to convulse violently, Cameron fell down on the subway platform. He hit hard. He had hit his head. But somehow he managed to scramble up to his feet. He got up again and he began to kind of stagger along the edge of the subway platform like this until all of a sudden the next wave of the seizure took him and he fell down into the train bed. Just as the thundering roar of the train began to shake the station and the lights could be seen, the flickering lights against the wall of the subway station. Somehow, nobody had their iPhone out. To catch it. Somehow nobody saw the event, was able to capture it, post it on YouTube for other people to to see later. No camera caught the face of the person who was undoubtedly there, who saw what happened, but turned their eyes away in absolute horror about at what was about to happen. No video zoomed in on the face of the person who was frozen in their tracks looking at absolute, in absolute helplessness at what was about to transpire in front of them. No video clip exists anywhere of all the other people in that very crowded subway station that were in just such a hurry getting to where they had to go or perhaps so hard of heart through tough experiences in life that they did nothing to respond to what was going on down there. And in seconds, a young, white, well-educated young man with dreams of working in Hollywood and being a producer one day, in seconds, this young man would meet an unthinkably horrible, violent death and nobody could do anything about it. Actually, nobody would do anything about it. Except for the man who did. Most of you, some of you maybe have heard the story by now of the 50-year-old construction worker, a black man named Wesley Autry, who somehow crossed the boundary of horror that withered others at what was going on. 
Somehow he unstuck his feet from the concrete shoes of helplessness that was freezing others that were close enough to know what was going on. Somehow he managed to step up and over the very high curb of hurry or social hard-heartedness that could have prevented his action very understandably, I suppose. Autry was actually extremely busy. He was taking his two daughters home. He was a middle-aged black man from Harlem with almost nothing in common with this white kid who was actually Harvard-educated, who was down now in that ditch, but in spite of it all, Autry, Wesley Autry, chose to do something no one else did. He strode across the subway platform. He looked down into that particular rail bed, and then he jumped down into the ditch. And he threw his body on top of the convulsing, bloodied man lying there and he held him down until the train had rushed over them and he saved Cameron Hollow Peter's life. When he was interviewed about the incident later, Wesley Autry said that when he saw the headlights of the train appear, and I quote, I had to make a split decision, a split second decision. I don't feel like I did something spectacular, he said. I just saw someone who needed help. I I did what I felt was right because, say it out loud. Yeah. You're just supposed to do this. There's something about that particular story that is both inspiring and convicting, at least for me, maybe for you too. Partly because I ask myself, if I'd been in the subway station, what's the percentage likelihood I'd have done what that guy did? Ask that question for yourself, right? But there is this part in all of us, and as I suggested at the start, I think it may be just starting to wake up more in a lot of us in the midst of all the turbulence and the bickering and the the fighting and the bashing that goes on in our world today. There's just this part of us that longs for a way of love to take over our hearts and the hearts of everybody else we know. There's, there's this feeling that we would love it if more people had a profound regard for the well-being of others that was at least as strong as their regard for themselves. We feel that if we could all live by that way, that life might actually get dramatically better. That even if 50% of us in this nation could, could become more other-regarding in this kind of way, that Life, I mean, everything could change. Our problems, a lot of our difficulties would begin to get sorted out. And in our best moments, we yearn for that world. And we long to play some personal part, to get engaged in doing something to bring about that kind of world ourselves. And in that regard, I think we're maybe a little bit like the man who came up to Jesus one day. 
apparently longing for some help, for some instruction in knowing how to live into the possibilities of God more fully. We read about it in Luke chapter 10. If you've got your Bible handy, pull it out. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one in the pew. Luke chapter 10 at verse 25. I want to invite you to listen to this encounter as Jesus um, meets this man. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That is to say, to see how wise Jesus really was. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? You're a lawyer? What's written in the law that might give you a clue, Jesus asks. And the lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Good going. You've got it. You've got it. Do this, he says, and you'll live. And by that he's saying, you know, you'll enter into the eternal kind of life now. You live in this way of love like this, man. This is what it's all about. Do this and you'll live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. In other words, he wanted to prove himself righteous and right. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now I want to hit the pause button there for just a second in the story. And ask you if you can see the conflicting impulses we're meeting in this guy. On the one hand, there's this guy who really seems, at least the appearance is, to want to do the right thing. He's like your average commuter. I mean, like those people in the, in the subway station. If you'd interviewed them while they were up on the street and about to come down to the sub, subway station and says there may be a problem in their day, would you want to do the right thing? And they say, oh, of course I want to do the right thing. He's like a lot of us. We want, in our best moments, to do the right thing. In fact, if if I came up to you today and I put a microphone in front of you and I said, would you like love to be the highest law in the land? I mean, would would you like that? I am sure that he, like we, would probably say, yes. Yes. It'd be even easier if, if I phrased the question this way, if I said, would you like it if everybody went around seeking the good of everyone else? And that would be the better way of phrasing the question, frankly. Because, you know, that's what the word love really means, biblically speaking. You know, we hear the word love and we think that we've got to be all mushy and gushy towards everybody else. We think, how am I going to be mushy and gushy towards you know, all these people. I, hardly, I, I struggle enough to be mushy and gushy towards my spouse or my, you know, my boyfriend and girlfriend or my, my friends and my, my closest intimates. But that's not what the word love means, according to the Bible. The best translation of what the biblical understanding of love is, is, is to will, as in to move toward the good of others. To will the good of others. You know, I can have an enemy. I can have somebody that's, 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 
banging at me. I'm not going to feel mushy and gushy towards that person, but I can will their good in spite of them, right? So if you could cast a vote in the next election so that you knew that everyone would then be guided by a law of love like that, how many of us would say, I vote for that, I vote for that would be good. I think a lot of us would. But then there's this other impulse that comes kicking in. Like it did for the lawyer in the question. There's this other part, at least of me, that while I'm really excited about this idea of really loving and willing the good of other people, begins to think about what that might really mean in practice. I mean, what would it cost me specifically to love that way when I'm out in the parking lot. To love that way when I really am in a hurry. I got places to go and there's a need there and I got, I got stuff. To love that way when I when I'm already feel like I'm bench pressing enough pressure in my life with the, the relationships I've got to, and, and now you're calling me to love those people on the, on the mission newsletter sheet. Do good for them. There's this part of me that begins to think there's got to be some kind of boundaries here. I mean, you can't be calling me to jump in a ditch in front of a train. You can't be calling me to, 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 get, to get all bloody and have this kind of you know, risky stuff in my life. There's got to be some limits. What would I be required to do? There must be some fences around what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to do it toward. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, is this just me? Are you out there? You can, say, you can say, yeah. It's safe to talk in church. Yeah, okay. So, so here's what I think. I think we admire the way of love. But a whole lot of the time we live by the law of limits. Um, and so we go through our lives kind of asking the question, where can I draw the line so that I don't have to love every person I meet in those challenging ways and yet still be thought of as a loving person and think of myself as a loving person? And like the, like the lawyer in, the, in this scenario, this encounter with Jesus, we, we ask, according, let's be reasonable here, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Who's the person I have to really do this with? In reply, Jesus said, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've been on that road, by the way. There was an old trail that wound down from Jerusalem all the way down to Jericho, and it was these switchbacks, and it was just, I've walked the road personally. And um, in fact, you can, drive, you, can, you can both walk it and drive it to this day. There's a super highway now that runs from Jerusalem down to Jericho, but there's still an old winding macadam road, and off of the trail of that, there's a dirt path that goes back and forth, and you could walk it. And this is the scene Jesus is picturing, and everybody knows this is a bad road because all those little switchbacks provide this incredible range of options for muggers. So Jesus says, a man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to be going down the same road. And you can hear people in the audience going, all right, a priest. This guy is in good shape. A priest just showed up. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, that means somebody that works in church, right? A Levite, when he came to the place, saw him. And again, people would go, all right, there's somebody to help him out. And he passed by on the other side as well. Now, given the fact that these two guys were religious men, in other words, they were people more familiar than the average commuter, right, with what God's word calls for in life, uh, with the law of love that was at the heart of Jerusalem, because the, the, the love of the Lord your God and love your neighbor, this, was, this went back to Deuteronomy. This was Old Testament stuff. These guys knew those, that, that law. And, and, and given the fact they knew so much, it's not entirely clear why they didn't stop on the surface of it. And Jesus doesn't tell us why. Can you guess why? Maybe they were horrified at the bloody guy in the ditch, at the terror of the problem. Oh, wow. Maybe they felt like we sometimes feel in the face of other people's pain. Huh, I'm helpless. I mean, that's such a big need. I mean, I don't have the resources with me to, to, to address this, this need. Maybe they were so hurried. I've got to get to the church service, you know? You know? Um, or maybe they were just hardened by the suffering of the world. So they didn't stop. And they thought to themselves, after all, I'm a loving guy, but love has its limits. This is why what actually happens next made the front page news when Jesus told the story. Like it makes it today when things like this happen. It's, it was such a memorable thing that people who heard Jesus tell the story never forgot it. Like you probably will never forget the story of Cameron Hollopeter. They never forgot it. They just kept passing this story on and on and on until it got written down and came down through the centuries to us because of what happened next, because of how outrageous and amazing it was. And it's picked up in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Now, now to appreciate what happens next, you have to understand that in ancient times, Jewish people treated Samaritans really badly. I mean, very badly. They routinely scoffed at Samaritans. They spat at them. They rejected them. They did not do business with them. They did not worship with them. They refused to recognize them as equal citizens. The average Jew would not even think of stopping to talk to a Samaritan, much less aid them in a time of need. It just was an unthinkable thing that a Jew would do that for a Samaritan. After all of the abuse that Jews heaped on Samaritans, you would expect that if a Samaritan passed by a Jewish guy in this particular condition, like this guy was down in the ditch, the only reason he would stop was to laugh up his sleeve at the guy or give him a good pounding for all of the 
the trouble that the Jews had caused to the Samaritans. And that is why those who first listened to Christ's story here would have just gasped at the next part of the storyline. Jesus says, and when the Samaritans saw the Jew, he took pity on him. And the words there really is his guts began to wrench with compassion for him. And not only that, he went to him. He didn't just say, oh, I feel really sorry for that guy. I feel that poor guy, I feel sorry for him. He went to him. He got down in the ditch with him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. In other words, he had supplies, precious things. He gave him away to meet the need there. And not only that, he put the man up on his own donkey. He took him from there to an inn, which took him way out of his way to get to an inn, perhaps. And he took care of him. And not only that, the next day he took out two silver coins and some talking about some moolah here, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Wow. One of the reasons why I love this parable is because Jesus is so dang honest about how expensive compassion is. Right? We know this to be true. To love in the way Jesus loves ain't cheap. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not something that... I mean, you can say, hi, hey, have a great day. That's not expensive. But to love like Jesus has in mind is expensive. It's not a sentimental thing. I, I found that getting close to a neighbor in need costs stuff. Working with other people's flaws and wounds gets emotionally messy. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that, right? Investing in people with problems diverts us from our normal roots and our schedules. It costs us money sometimes and other precious resources. It may subject us to all kinds of lengthy entanglements. Oh, I didn't plan to be in this kind of situation with this person for this long, we often think to ourselves. In other words, compassion for our neighbor requires denying that very self that we like to set limits and boundaries to protect. To do what Wes Autry did, or the Samaritan in the story did, means dying to that version of the self that we spend a lot of our time erecting limits to protect. It means to walk the way of Jesus. You know, Jesus is not telling a moralistic tale here. This is a really big idea, important one, so just hang with me a few minutes longer. We've turned this into a little moralistic tale, but what it really is, Jesus is telling us, his listeners, his own story. He's telling us about the heart of God. He's telling us about his own mission. He's giving a clue to those in the crowd about who he is and what he's come to do. He's telling them that I am the cosmic Samaritan. The world has turned its back on God in the way that the Jews had turned their back on the Samaritans. 
Um, and the Pharisees in Jesus' time who were listening had turned their back on Jesus in the same kind of way. There is nothing in the merit of human beings that should require God to reach out and meet their needs. I mean, he already gave them a world. He gave them resources and amazing opportunities. And they turned their backs on him. There's nothing in reasonable language or reasonable terms that should require God to do more. God could so appropriately set a limit and say, enough, I'm doing nothing more for that race. But Jesus shows us that for God, the law of love is larger than the law of limits. And so God does this amazing thing. He crosses the, the, the chasm between eternity and time, between humanity and holiness. And he doesn't stand back when he sees the need, horrified and helpless and, and hurried and hardened. Instead, God wills our good. He, he treats us the way he would like to be treated by us. He, he descends into the ditch. He goes on to, he throws himself onto the tracks. He, he spreads himself out on the cross, to, 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 on that bloody place in order to save us. From the, the train of destruction that's rushing down on us. And the Jericho Road that Jesus is describing is actually the road to the cross. He's walking. I'm convinced that the ditch that borders the Jericho Road still runs through our world today and will be along the road that you travel when you leave this place. And there are going to be many people in it they're going to be out there. And if you listen between now and the next time we're together, you're going to hear the groans. Um, you're going to hear the cries of somebody that life is just pummeled, pounded. Maybe deservedly, I don't know. Maybe they were stupid. Maybe they shouldn't have been walking where they were, but they got pummeled. Maybe they were totally innocent and became a, a victim. And the question is, will you be able to, to do more than just see it, more than just notice it? And some of us, that'll be hard to even notice. And for some of us, it'll be our spouse that's, that, that is that person. It'll be our child. It'll be our coworker. It'll be somebody who lives down the street or, or somebody that comes down the sidewalk who's in pain. And I understand why even if you're able to, under, to, to perceive the need, some of us will, will just view their issues as so horrible that we've learned to look away from them. Or, or, or we'll see their issues as so big that we feel helpless in the face of them. Or we'll, we'll, we'll feel such, so hurried or so hardened that everything in us will say, ah, that a limit. Somebody else will have to deal with that. And we will be tempted to just pass by on the other side. There is something, however, that calls us to do more. There is something that calls us from the natural, understandable, self-oriented focus towards our own needs and calls us towards the needs of our neighbor. There is someone who keeps trying to move us beyond our comfortable, reasonable limits 
so that we will actually will and work for the good of the people around us in a different way than is common in our day. And I just imagine Jesus being interviewed in heaven after he returned from his work on the cross. And the angels looked at him and said, what in the world were you doing down there? And he said, well, I just saw the headlights of self-destruction that was thundering down on that human race down in the ditch to which they had fallen. And I had to make a decision. I don't feel like I really did something spectacular, says Jesus. I just saw people who so needed help, and I knew I had the power to give that help. And so I just, I did what was right, because you're supposed to, if you're a person of love, come to people's rescue. Do we get that in our time? That the most important question is not the limiting one. Who is my neighbor? But the far more loving one. To whom can I be a neighbor? In the way Jesus models and commands. Which was a neighbor to the man. Who fell into the hands of robbers, asked Jesus, ignoring the man's question, who is my neighbor? Which was the neighbor, he asked. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus looked at him with love, I'm sure, and said to him, good, you now. Go and do likewise. Please pray with me. Lord, we know we don't have to follow that command. There is no human law or court that's going to compel us to move toward rather than around many of the people we're going to meet on the journey ahead but we do not want to walk through life as everybody else does. We want to walk the way of Jesus. And so fill us afresh in this Lenten season with wonder over that amazing love that moved you to climb down to meet the needs of those you didn't have to help. And then by the power of your Holy Spirit, move us to do likewise. To will and to work for the good of somebody this week. Like we would want to be loved ourselves. In the name of the Savior we pray. Amen.